As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so Matt, I went to Home Depot today and I got me a new pair of gloves, you know, work gloves for working outside mm -hmm. and stuff. And yeah. it wasn't until I got home that I realized both of them were lefts. So, I mean, on one hand, it's great, but on the other, it's just not right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Hey, I'm doing okay. Good deal. I'm sweating like meatloaf. Yeah, I understand. I understand. <laughs> I always say I'm, I'm sweating like a goat farmer. And <laughs> I've known a few of them. I know they can sweat, so. <laughs> That's a terrible <laughs> does, uh, does a go I don't know any goat farmers. Do they sweat a lot? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're at the tending goats in the summer. You're going to sweat. I mean, yeah. as much as a cow farmer or anything. I mean, it's just, you know. Uh, anyways, so uh, we want to say go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. You can find a list of shows on there on uh, of podcasts on so many different topics, so many different genres, and you may not stumble across them normally. So go check that out, podbelly.com, and find you some new shows to listen to. We're we're proud to be members of the Podbelly Network, uh, so go check them out. Uh, we also want to thank tonight's sponsor, Super Speciosa and AMC Shutter, and we'll talk a little bit more about them later. Um, while you're on the internet looking up some things that you'll need to clear your search history for, uh, go over to patreon.com slash graveyard tales, and you can sign up to become a patron, and you can get bonus episodes every week. And if you're a $10 patron, then you get the video versions of us recording these episodes with stuff left in that I would normally cut out for the audio version. Um, if you're a $10 patron, then you see my new setup behind me. I got lights for the cabinets and uh, I got a, a, a better setup so that I don't have the big halo ring thing that I had up there for a while. Um, so... Go sign up, become a $10 patron, and you can see us in our respective graveyards here. Yeah. 
All right, Matt. So let's take a second and let's talk about one of our newest sponsors, Super Speciosa. Now, I I have been taking Kratom on and off for probably six or seven years now. I, I found it when I was looking into the different herbs and doing my herbalism training and stuff like that. And that's what kind of got me on to trying it. Well, Kratom is an all-natural ancient super leaf that's related to the coffee plant, and it's been used in Thailand for centuries. And Kratom helps energize your mind and relax your body, and it helps you just feel good without feeling impaired. And right. yeah. that's kind of the one of the two reasons I take it. Uh, one of the reasons I take it is as an energy boost um, in the morning and like midday if I need it, or some of the strains, because we'll talk about it, but they have different strains, and some of the strains are good for pain management as well. So I will take some of the strains for pain management. Now, the cool thing about Super Speciosa is that Super Speciosa has only one ingredient, and it's pure kratom leaf. All of Super Speciosa's batches come with a certified lab report, so you know exactly what you're getting, and they have powders, capsules, tablets, and teas. And personally, my favorite is the powder. I know it is for you, Matt. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Matt and I were just literally talking about this. Um, it's been probably five years ago that Matt and I first started talking about Kratom. And yeah. I, I kind of turned him on to the, the Kratom thing. And he's been taking it for the same reasons I have. Yeah. And so I know a, a lot of you are going, all right, I've heard all this about superfoods, superfruits, this, that. You got to have this and you got to take that. It's going to make you feel amazing. And, you know, and you're just like, what, what, what is that? I mean, why would this be any different? Let me, let me tell you. So as Adam said, he's got six or seven years. I've done this about five years. And this is what it does for me. You know, I, I've talked about I have chronic pain. Um, you know, I, I played football for years. So my my 48-year-old body, you know, it, it feels it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it, I've, I just, I hurt. It's just part of getting older. But Kratom uh, helps me control that pain without taking any kind of prescription painkillers, without just down and over-the-counter remedies, you know, like M&Ms, uh, which <laughs> I had a bad habit of doing. Kratom helped me get away from that. But, yep. you know, in the morning, you know, I may I may grab um, some white strain Kratom, which, you know, has that pick-me-up, has that energy boost, uh, and, and and I'm ready for the day. But in the, in the evening, closer to bedtime, um, I, I like having red strain Kratom to help me kind of calm down, relax, and it's even better for pain. I sleep better. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't wake up at night. You know, I mm-hmm. wake up in the morning. Uh, you know, going. Oh wow. You know, that was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't. I've slept all through the night once again. Refreshed um, and ready for a new day. Exactly. Exactly. So if you've if you've heard about it, if you've never heard about kratom. And you're thinking, man, sounds like this could do a lot for me. And you want to give it a try. Super Speciosa is a great place to start. Okay. Um, We've tried their products. 
and I absolutely love it. Hands I mean, down, the best one that I've found in all all the doubt. years I've tried it. This is hands down the best. Yeah, without a doubt. So, you know, if you've never done it before, taking the tea or the capsules is a really easy way to start because um, they're just so easy to use mm-hmm. and it gives you a, a, a really good feeling of of how Kratom is going to help you without you having to go through a, a, a big lot of issues. You know, Adam and I, we like the powder. You know, take it like a headache powder, dump it in, wash it down. Mm-hmm. Um, works great, but honestly, whatever... Whatever form works for you, and like I said, capsules and tea is a good way to start. Um, that's what's going to be best. You have several different colors of uh, uh, strains. Um, green is an excellent place to start. Super Speciosa recommends green to all their new customers who are just getting into using Kratom. And they have a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So that's great. If it's not for you, you're like a nope, I didn't, I didn't dig this at all. Um, they will give you your money back, and that's fine. That's fantastic because you're not going to find other companies willing to do that. No, I was going to say this is the only company I've found that will do that for Kratom. Yeah. So, if Graveyard tells li- listeners, if you want to take advantage of something that can give you some energy, get you through the day, um, help you relax, maybe sleep better at night, or relieve some of that old nagging pain, go to Get Super Leaf dot com slash graveyard tales and you will get 20% off your order with our promo code grave that's g-r-a-v-e right just go to get superleaf.com slash graveyard tales and use our promo code grave g-r-a-v-e for 20% off your order So, Matt, that's all I got. So, why don't you tell us? What are we talking about tonight, brother? Okay, so tonight we are going to discuss something a little different. Um, we've touched on things like this before. Um, but this is this has some uh, real historical and, and possibly religious significance. We are going to talk about the lost city of Dwarka. Um, if if you've never heard of Dwarka, um, there there is a current modern day mm-hmm. Dwarka, um, but the ancient city of Dwarka was supposedly, um, uh, I, I would I, built is not the right word, I guess, but um, it was created by Krishna, and it in the Arabian Sea. And eventually, the sea swallowed it up. Yep. It's um, uh, India's some, Atlantis, basically. India's Atlantis is what it is sometimes referred to. But recently, there have been, and when I say recently, I mean within the last 50, 60 years, mm-hmm. there have been some discoveries of things in in the depths of the Arabian Sea that lead people to believe that the city of Dwarka may not just be a myth. Right. That they might have actually discovered evidence that it was indeed a real city. Right. 
So we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about uh, the history of the city of Dwarka. We're going to talk about the excavations that have occurred and the uh, the significance of this, um, both, like I said, historically and religiously. Right. Because you hear people talking about Atlantis all the time, which we may talk about at some point because I have my own theories about that. But that's a whole nother episode. Uh, but you don't hear people talking about Dwarka. And I remember the first time I heard about Dwarka, I was like, holy crap. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, some of the things that we've got for you um, that Matt has uncovered are quite interesting. And it may make you think differently that maybe the ancient Dwarka might actually be real. Um But as we always say, go check our sources down in the bottom of the show notes. You can find where we found all this information and you can continue the research if you would like to. Um, I want to start by saying that uh, we're going to do our best to pronounce things correctly. um, And we're going to try to discuss the topics to the best of our ability. Um, But don't take offense if we mispronounce anything. Um, If you listen to us at all, you know, we can't pronounce names and places in English let alone <laughs> from other countries. Right. Um, you know, and also don't take offense if we portray something in a different way than what you know it to be. Um, correct us if you want. Do it politely. Um, but, you know, this is new knowledge for Matt and I because we didn't grow up learning about this. So right. if you grew up learning about this and, and you have a different take on it, you know, we, we respect that and and everything, and we don't mean offense by any of this. Um, but first we need to take a look at the Mahabharata, um, and talk about its importance. Uh, now the Mahabharata is an epic that is comprised of 100,000 stanzas of verse. So it's huge. Um, it's divided into 18 books or parvas. Um, and it is the largest single literary work in existence. Mm-hmm. which is just, I mean, that in itself is fascinating to me that it's the largest uh, written work that's in existence. Yeah, it, it's when I read that about it having a, a hundred thousand stanzas, I was, I, I had to go back and I was like, am I reading that right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> It's like, you know, people always used to joke about having to read War and Peace or something. You know, mm-hmm. you get a book that's this thick. How about a book so thick it's got 18 books? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, at that point, uh, you would gladly take War and Peace. Uh, if you had to yeah, read this like- for English literature or something, you'd, you'd be. <laughs> yeah. They inspired George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so originally it was composed in the ancient language of Sanskrit, uh, sometime they think between 400 BC and 400 AD. Now it is set in a legendary era thought to correspond to the period, um, to that period of Indian culture and history in approximately the 10th century BC. So it, this source is saying that um, it's it's about the 10th century BC is what time frame they're talking. 
um, that the Mahabharata stories are set in and all that. Now, like a lot of other ancient books, it was not written in the era that it's discussing. Right, yeah. It's it's discussing historical events, and it's written hundreds of years after those events took place. I mean, just like um, the Christian Bible, it's the same the same way. Right. Yeah. Now, it, I, it's not it, it's not like a a current um, text. Yeah. You know they're they're not journaling right what's, was, what's currently happening. I was going to say dudes are not sitting back there journaling as they're watching it go down and you've got somebody in the corner writing furiously what's happening. Yeah. Now, let's look at a quick synopsis of the Mahabharata from uh, the World History Encyclopedia. So this is um it's going to be a little more generalized than if we were to get into um a text from an Indian writer who grew up with it and knows it intimately. Um, in doing that, we could probably do a whole podcast series on just the Mahabharata. Um, we couldn't cover it in one episode. So now the Mahabharata is an ancient Indian epic. It says where the main story revolves around two branches of a family, the Pandavas and the Karavas. Um, now, who in the Kurukshetra War battle for the throne of Hastinpura? Now, interwoven into this narrative are several smaller stories about people, dead or living, and philosophical discourses. Now, Krishna Dwipayan Vyasa himself, a character in the epic, composed it as according to tradition. He dictated the verses. And um, Ganesha wrote them down at 100,000 verses. It is the largest epic poem ever written, generally thought to have been composed, like this says, in the fourth century BCE or maybe even earlier. Now, the events in the epic play out in the Indian subcontinent and surrounding areas. It was first narrated by a student of Vyasa at a snake sacrifice of the great-grandson of one of the major characters in the story, including within it the Bhagavad Gita, which we'll discuss a little bit. Uh, the Mahabharata is one of the most important texts of ancient India, indeed world literature as well. Yeah. Um, hey, I just I just want to take a minute, and and everybody should stop at, you know, almost 13 minutes into this show and applaud Adam for getting through that list of names. I mean, he did a fantastic job. I'm well, serious. Man, I'll tell you, I, I legitimately went through and did a uh, pronounce wiki, basically. How do I pronounce this? Yeah. Um, because... And I probably still don't get them right. It's just how they're coming out with my Texas tongue. But um, I, you know, I wanted to get these right I, or right. as close to right as my mouth would allow me to. So um, I thank you. I thank you. Um, now, I mentioned the Bhagavad Gita. Um, so let's look at where this comes up in the Mahabharata. And to do this, we need to quickly look at the Kurukshetra War. Um, and like I said before, if you want more detail 
on the names of the people in here um, besides Krishna, who we'll discuss shortly. Go check out the links that we provided or just go research the Mahabharata more on your own. Um, like I was saying, it would take a whole podcast season, quote unquote, to get through just the Bhagavad Gita and not the whole Mahabharata. So um, we're I'm going to try to synopsize this as best I can while doing justice to the literature here. Yeah, this is the Cliff Notes version. Yep, the Graveyard <laughs> Tales Notes version. Um, so this says, just before the war bugle was sounded, Arjuna saw arrayed before him his relatives, his great-grandfather Bisham, um, I'm sorry, Bishma, who had practically brought him up, his teachers Kripa and Drona, his brothers Karavas, and for a moment, his... Uh, resolution wavered. Krishna, the warrior par excellence, had given up arms for this war and had elected to be Arjuna's charioteer. To him, Arjuna said, quote, take me back, Krishna. I can't kill these people. People, They're my father, my brothers, my teachers, my uncles, my sons. What good is a kingdom that's gained at the cost of their lives? Then followed a philosophical discourse that has today become a separate book on its own, the Bhagavad Gita. Now, Krishna explained the impermanence of life to Arjuna and the importance of doing one's duty and of sticking to the right path. Arjuna picked up his bow again. Now, the battle raged for 18 days. The army totaled 18 Akshahini, or battle formations, um, seven on the Pandava side and 11 on the Kaurava side. Um, you know, it's made, uh, it gives a breakdown of 21,000 plus chariots, 21,000 plus elephants, 65,000 plus horses, and 109,000 plus soldiers on foot. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it's, it was interesting that there's exactly the same number of uh, chariots and elephants. Yeah. So yeah. they built chariots that are pulled by elephants. That's kind of cool. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Um, now, casualties on both sides of the war were high. When it all ended, the Pandavas had won the war, but lost almost everyone they held dear. Um, Duryodhan and all of the Kauravas had died, as had all of the menfolk of Draupadi's family. Uh, including all of her sons by the Pandavas. The now-dead Karna was revealed to be a son of Kunti from before her marriage to Pandu, and thus the eldest Pandava and the rightful heir to the throne. The grand old man Bhishma uh, lay dying. The teacher Drona was dead, as were several kinsfolk related to them either by blood or by marriage. In about 18 days, the entire country lost almost three generations of its men. It was a war not seen on a scale before. It was the great Indian war, the Mahabharata. Um, so that, I mean, to me, what that sounds like is a, the Mahabharata is casualty wise. It is basically like the American Civil War. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. Um, and it, it has probably some more similarities, too, but um, casualty-wise, losing that many people 
it, it felt to me like the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's a lot of of bloodshed. You know, we're talking about you know generations of mm-hmm. of families being wiped out. You know, yeah. fathers, grandfathers, sons. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this was a significant um, event, not just in in this in this storyline, but in ancient Indian history. This everything just kind of forms around this war. Yes. Yep. And that that's why we're discussing it is because it's a very um a very important part of Indian history and of Dwarka and everything else that we'll talk about shortly. Now, after the war, Yudhishthir became king of Hastinpura and Indrapasta, uh, and the Padavas ruled, the Pandavas ruled for 36 years, after which they abdicated in favor of Abhimanyu's son, Parikshit, the Pandavas and the Drupadis proceeded on foot to the Himalayas, intending to live out their last days climbing the slopes heavenward. One by one, they fell on this last journey and their spirits ascended to heaven. Years later, Parikshit's son succeeded his father as king. He held a big sacrifice at which this entire story was recited for the first time by a disciple of Vyasa called uh Vaishampayan, Vaishampayan, sorry. Um, now, since that time, this story has been retold countless times, expanded upon and retold again. Now, the Mahabharata remains popular to this day in India, and it has been adapted and recast in contemporary mode in several films and plays. Children continue to be named after the characters in this epic, and the Bhagavad Gita is one of the holiest of Hindu scriptures. Beyond India, the Mahabharata story is popular in Southeast Asia and cultures that were influenced by Hinduism, such as Indonesia and Malaysia. So it's not just in India that right. this story is popular. Um, I mean, again, it's a lot like the Christian Bible. It's not just European or it's not just American that... Uh, the Bible is popular in, and it's the same yeah. with the Mahabharata. But much like the Christian Bible, um, you've got uh, people that believe that this is just a collection of stories. Right. Yep. And then you have people that believe this is historical. It's, it's fact based. Yep. Um, it, it, it's, it's telling of actual events. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, 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 it causes a divide among uh, people just, just like the Christian Bible does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, let's look at Lord Krishna. And this, uh, this first part comes from the Tremandir Foundation, which is a group of several non-secretarian temples and an all-nonprofit spiritual organization. Um, so what they say is that Lord Krishna or Sri Krishna is most often worshipped in these different forms. Bal Krishna as an infant, Gopala as a mischievous young boy, 
um, Vasudeva, a human being evolved to the stage of godhood, or Yogeshwar, one who realized the ultimate self. So uh, Krishna has had had all these forms through his life, and so he is worshipped in di- in these different stages for different reasons. Um, now we'll move beyond that source to another, and let's look at Krishna's life. Now this says Krishna, one of the most widely revered and most popular of all Indian divinities, worshipped as the eighth incarnation of the Hindu god Vishnu and also as a supreme god in his own right. The basic sources of Krishna's mythology are the epic Mahabharata and its 5th century CE appendix, the Harivamsha. Now, they relate how Krishna was born into the Yadava clan, the son of Vasudeva and Devaki, who was the sister of Kamsa, the wicked king of Mathura, which is modern-day Uttar Pradesh, if you know anything about the geography in India. Now, Kamsha, hearing a prophecy that he would be destroyed by Devaki's child, tried to slay her children. But Krishna was smuggled across the uh, Yamanu River to Gokula, uh, which is modern-day Gokul, where he was raised by the leader of the cowherds, Nanda, and his wife, Yashoda. Now, the children or the child Krishna was adored for his mischievous pranks. He also performed many miracles and slew demons. As a youth, the cowherd Krishna became renowned as a lover. The sound of his flute prompting the wives and daughters of the cowherds to leave their homes to dance uh, in ecstasy with him in the moonlight. His favorite among them was the beautiful Radha. Now, at length, Krishna and his brother Balarama returned to Mathura to slay the wicked Kamsa. Afterward, finding the kingdom unsafe, Krishna led the Adavas to the western coast um, of Kathiawar and established his court at Dwarka. He married the princess. Rukmini and took other wives as well. Now Krishna refused to bear arms in the great war between the uh, Kauravas and the Pandavas, but he offered a choice, and this is what I didn't touch on earlier. Um, he offered a choice of his personal attendance to one side and the loan of his army to the other side. So the Pandavas chose the former, and Krishna thus served as charioteer. Or Arjuna, one of the Pandava brothers. On his return to Dwarka, a brawl broke out one day among the Yadava chiefs in which Krishna's brother and son were slain. As the god sat in the forest lamenting, a huntsman, mistaking him for a deer, shot him in his one vulnerable spot, the heel, and killing him. So, hey, just a brief synopsis of Krishna, Krishna's life. I know there was a lot of names in there, but it was kind of to set up where he came from and uh, just a general description of his life. 
So you right. kind of have an idea going into uh, Matt discussing Dwarka and all that. Yeah. And you, you've got to understand that Krishna was, it was and is not only worshipped um, as an incarnation of Vishnu, but he was also recognized as a god himself. Right, right. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure how that works. I mean, I think it I'm, would be. I, I am a god, but I am also this god. But yeah. I think it was, it was more or less he was like a physical incarnation of Vishnu. Yes. But as himself, as Krishna, he was also divine. Yep. Um, you got it. So it's it's kind of like when you start talking about things like the Holy Trinity or anything like mm-hmm, that. It's mm-hmm. like I don't get it. How does yeah. that work? It's it's the it's the same it's the same type thing where it, it's two in one. Um, but you know, as Adam relayed, you know, there are other aspects of Krishna that are are worshipped and revered and followed. Um, you know, different aspects of his life um, that is told throughout the uh, the Mahabharata. So let's move from this to, to Dwarka and, and how it connects to Dwarka. So according to the ancient text, Dwarka is considered to be the first capital of Gujarat. Now, it's a city that was said to have been built or created by Lord Krishna after he killed his uncle Kansa in Mathura. Now, in the Mahabharata, Dwarka is described as a utopian city with very opulent architecture. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the legend says that Krishna summoned divine powers to build the magnificent city, which rose out of the sea complete with a massive stone wall to protect it. Now, after Krishna's death, the legendary kingdom sank into the Arabian Sea and all of its glory just faded into myth. Mm -hmm. And as Adam said at the top of the show, much like Atlantis, this this very, um, you know, opulent... Um, extremely advanced Mm -hmm. city and civilization that essentially the sea took back. Yep. Okay. For for whatever reason, whatever. Um. That's that's how the story happens. So it's very similar here. Right. Right. And it was so advanced and and opulent that it said everybody was always happy in this city. Mm-hmm. Like there, there was no, nobody getting mad, nobody getting upset or sad or anything because of j- just the opulence of the city and how, I mean, it was r- built and run by Krishna. So everybody mm-hmm. was just happy. Yeah. Everybody got along. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody was, had plenty to eat, you know, was well educated. Um, and protected and safe. Right. So, as I mentioned earlier, many scholars will look at the Mahabharata as a a wonderful, fantastic, uh, epic poem and nothing more. Mm-hmm. But 
followers of Krishna, practitioners of Hindu, they believe that the Mahabharata is is a historical guidebook. That it the the stories um, are are factual, and and they they were written and they they were to be studied and learned from, and used as as a guidance to how to live your life and and how to serve Krishna. Right. Now, what's interesting about this is by studying the Mahabharata, archaeologists believe that the remains of the ancient city of Dwarka may well be in the depths of the Arabian Sea. Now, the first excavation looking for uh, the lost city of Dwarka started nearly 100 years ago in the 1930s, okay? And these excavations were done around the island of Bet Dwarka, which is about 30 kilometers north of the modern-day Dwarka uh, in the Jamnagar district of Gujarat. Now, more excavations were conducted in the 1960s, but yet there were no conclusive results. So over the last 50 years or so, archaeologists have made attempts to find physical evidence of the sunken city off the coast of the modern-day Dwarka so they can prove its existence beyond a doubt. So you, you understand now why, why we, we went through the story of the Mahabharata and, and discussed that so you, you understand the significance of finding a lost city like this. Right. Right. It, it it's not just, just, oh, it's a lost city. Oh, you know. Right. Fantastic. There is a huge significance to Dwarka. So should they be able to find proof that they could, that, that the lost city of Dwarka is, you know, under the sea, not only is it a fantastic historical find, but it, it virtually cements the Mahabharata as mm-hmm. a, a, a factual work. Exactly, it, yeah. At, at least in part. Now, in 1979, the Archaeological Survey of India carried out another excavation where archaeologist Dr. S.R. Rao um, found some pottery that he thought belonged to the second millennium B.C., Now, between 1983 and 1990, the archaeologists came across a structure that looked like a fortified foundation on which the ancient city walls must have been built along the riverbanks. Stone blocks used for construction, pillars, and irrigation systems were found. However, there's been some dispute as to what the exact age of these artifacts is. Now, in January of 2007, recent. The under, yeah, recent. The Underwater Archaeological Wing, or the UAW, of the Archaeological Survey of India began excavations at Dwarka again. Now, Alok Tripathi, who was the supervising archaeologist for the UAW, said the ancient underwater structures found in the Arabian Sea were yet to be identified. 
He said, quote, we have to find out what they are. They are fragments. I would not like to call them a wall or a temple. They are part of some structure. Now, Dr. Tripathi was himself a trained diver. So it's one thing to just be looking at things that were brought up. It's another to actually be able to dive and see them, where they're located, how they're situated, because that speaks a lot to what you may determine you're looking at, what right. you found. Right. Um, if, if things are just kind of scattered around and somebody says, look at these stones, these are this old, look at this pottery, and we found them, you know, you could say, oh, okay, this could be anything. Yeah. Um, but to be able to actually go down and observe them um, uh, under the under the surface and and see how they're laid out, that gives you a better understanding of what it could have been. Yeah. It's like that um, Patreon that we discussed that you talked about um, that city off the coast of Japan, the, yeah. the supposed city off the coast of Japan. Right. Uh, when you see pictures of it, it, you know, you're like, oh, okay, cool. But for the divers that go down there and see it to them, yeah, this is legit. This is really a, a man-made structure that has some significance to it. Yeah. I mean, when you can, you can look at a picture and somebody says, well, this looks like stairs, but not only that in the case of the, the city off the coast of Japan, it looks like stairs that would have been for giants. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to, to, to grasp the scale right. and, and how they're laid out. But for a diver, you know, to see that you can, you can begin to make inferences that says, this does not look like something that happened naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was some intervention here to create this structure, which is important because, you know, nature can create a lot of things that are amazing and beautiful and intricate but there are some things that nature doesn't create. Right. And when you find those, you think, okay, there has been, there has been some other type of intervention, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's mm-hmm. human or divine, whatever, you know, you can see that there was an intelligent process that went in to, you know, either the construction or creation of, of these things. Right. So that's, that's why it was important for Tripathi to actually be a diver and witness these things. But even still, he goes on to say, quote, to study the antiquity of the site in a holistic manner, excavations are being conducted simultaneously both on land close to the Dwarkadish Temple and undersea to, so that finds from both places can be correlated and analyzed scientifically. Yeah, so, which is good. That is good because what, what he's essentially saying is if we find things that match up in, in in terrestrial excavations to the ones that are done underwater, then it, it leads it, it just gives uh, more credibility to these finds being a, a part of a lost city, possibly the lost city of Dwarka. Right. Now, the underwater excavations uh, in 2007 revealed structures and ridge-like features. Um, but other antiquities were also found. All the objects were photographed and documented with drawings, both done underwater. 
So I thought, how in the heck do you draw something underwater? <laughs> well, underwater cameras can be used to take pictures, um, but drawings are done on boards with a transparent polyester film of 75 microns fixed with a graph sheet below it. The graph sheet acts as the scale. Now, one or two divers will take the actual dimensions of what they're drawing, and the third one draws the picture. Oh, there you so, go. All right. So he's so he's drawing on this graph underwater tablet, okay, which in and of itself is kind of cool. Um, but they're also getting dimensions so he yeah. can actually draw this to scale. So when they're studying the drawings on land, you can you know, I could draw a picture of something, but, you know, then when I tell you, oh, it was this big. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like, I'm drawing this picture of the fish that I caught, and it, but it was this yeah. big. <laughs> it looks so, this big on the scale, <laughs> but then when you draw it, it's this big. Yeah. So, having that scale is critical. All right. So, other discoveries included bastions, walls, pillars, and triangular and rectangular stone anchors which that's also significant, and we'll get into that in a little bit. A semi-spherical single-hole stone that could have Say been that the base for a fast. flag post. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently my note said that semi-spherical is not a word. Um, oh, yeah, well. It wanted me to change it to hemispherical, but I, I was quoting the article, so I left it. Yeah. Um. There are they found L-shaped edges of stones for proper grip and arresting wave action on bastions. So th they were they were these these stones these these cornered stones that appeared to uh, allow waves to hit these bastions these towers. Um, but not cause any damage because it would right. essentially make the wave split. Um, like a wave break. Yeah. So they found seals, inscriptions, all of which have been dated to about 1500 BC. The pottery that they found was dated to 3528 BC. I don't know how in the world they got such a specific date out of that, but that's no. what it said. Yeah, I was going to say that this, the specificity of that date is amazing in and of itself. I know. Um, not only how how long ago that was, but just, oh, it's 3528 in July. <laughs> okay, that's amazing. Yeah. I believe I you, but that's amazing. That. Yeah. But uh, they also found stone sculptures, terracotta beads, bronze, copper, and iron objects. Okay, so they had a lot of stuff to work with. Mm -hmm. Now, also in 2007, Dr. Rao outlined that the location of Dwarka on the westernmost tip of India in present day uh, Gujarat matches with the one that is provided in the written literature. But one theory says that Dwarka was built on reclaimed land around 3,500 years ago and was submerged in water when the sea level started to rise. That's also significant because that's something that can be studied and you can, you can do research, scientific research um, 
on sea levels, you know, over the centuries and be able to determine, did this really happen? Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to get into that too. Now, scientific investigations have shown that the sea level in the area has risen and fallen many times, reaching present day levels in 1000 CE. Now, the reason for these dynamic sea levels could be anything from tectonic disturbances to coastal erosion. Okay. It's just a normal process that causes these sea levels to rise and fall. Now, I mentioned the anchors that were found um, at this site in 2007. And that was amazing to me when I saw pictures of those anchors. I know. um, Because you don't think of, like when we think of anchors, we think of steel anchors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you don't think, well, how did they anchor boats in antiquity? And uh, ingenious. It was ingenious. Yeah, I mean the design itself is is brilliant, mm-hmm. but um, those anchors that were found, um, they lend credence to the idea that Dwarka was an ancient port and had a place in the trading relations between India and Indian and Arabic regions during the fifteenth to eighteenth centuries, and the harbor area was used for anchoring boats. All right, Adam, let's take a minute and talk about one of our longtime sponsors, uh, AMC's Shudder. Now, Shudder is a streaming service for everything. Horror, supernatural, paranormal, thriller, scary. I mean, they got it, man. They have got it. It is the absolute best selection of horror movies, thrillers, and an original series. Uh, from Hollywood favorites and cult classics to acclaimed new movies that you won't find anywhere else. And they're always streaming uncut and commercial free. Now, the, one of the coolest things about Shudder is that there is an exclusive movie premiere every week, like Mom versus Creepy Cult Chiller The Twin, starring a discovery of witches Teresa Palmer, and gore-filled outbreak horror The Sadness. Plus, new episodes of Cursed Films and The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs, which that that is a great show if oh, you've not dude. watched it. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Um, and you've got the latest season of Eli Roth's History of Horror. That That's great. Uh, the History of Horror thing. I mean, I, I love it. I, I love the Joe Bob Briggs stuff, too, but... Um, one of the movies that they've got on there that wanted to touch on and kind of highlight, and especially if you've never seen it, is Poltergeist. And if you've not seen it, you need to go on to Shudder and check out Poltergeist. Late one night, 10-year-old Carol Ann Freeling hears a voice coming from the inside of the television set. At first, the spirits that invade the Freeling's home seem like playful children, which that's creepy to me anyway. Right. (laughs) I mean, I I don't dig that. So already we've got a scary movie for me. But then they turn angry. And when Carol Ann is pulled from this world into another, Steve and Diane Freeling turn to an exorcist in this horror classic from director Toby Hooper and producer Steven Spielberg. So go check that out if, if you've never seen it. And if you have seen it, 
go back and rewatch it because I guarantee you, you're still going to love it. It's a great movie. It's one of my favorite horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've, I have mentioned the movie Poltergeist. This is now the third time this week. I, oh, wow. I don't know why, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> Synchronicities, Funny. man. Yeah. So you can stream all of this and more from Shudder's ever-growing library of great horror and thrillers ad-free for just $5.99 a month. But we have a promo code for you. So like Matt said, Shudder has everything supernatural, thriller, and horror, and we can't get enough of it. And we know that you're going to love it too. So right now, you can stream your first 30 days of Shudder for free. All you've got to do is go to Shudder.com and enter our promo code GRAVE. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and use our code GRAVE, G-R-A-V-E. Yeah, that's 30 days to try out everything Shudder has to offer. You can't beat that for free. And then you're going to want to keep it. Mm -hmm. It's only $5.99 a month. But to get that first month free... You just have to go to Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, uh, and use our promo code GRAVE. That's G-R-A-V-E. So it was, you know, based on the research into the Mahabharata, they determined that this city was a, a seaport. Right. Finding all of these anchors just really just lends a lot of evidence to that being the fact and that this might very well be the city of Dwarka. Now, in Sanskrit, the word Dwarka means gateway or door, also implying that this ancient port city could have been an entryway for foreign sailors arriving in India. Yeah. Now, some more recent work done in this area have called into question Rao's identification of the underwater remains. So, like I said, there there's going to be people that were saying, mm, "Nah, I don't buy it." Yeah. Um, they I argue. Got a, oh, a go thing ahead. here. Uh, when you're done, I got a thing we can talk about that is, um, I think one of the biggest reasons that um, people dismiss the stories in the Mahabharata, but we'll, we'll get into that later. But yeah, there's a lot of people that go now it's just stories. Yeah, that's and, right. Which it's a shame. It's a dismissal of something that could, it could be the catalyst for some amazing discoveries. If yeah. people just took it a little more seriously. Yeah. But you're not only going to find people that say, eh, it's a myth. Um, it, it never really existed. You're also going to find people that say, yeah, it existed, but you're in the wrong place. Yeah, that's true. Okay. And so they argue that Krishna's kingdom was not on the banks of the river Gomti. Rather, it was located around the area of the Bay of Cambay, also known as the Gulf of Kambat. And the remnants belonging and the remnants belong to the Middle Ages and not a period between 3,000 to 1,500 years B.C. Hmm. So, you know, not not only are the people questioning if the location is accurate, but if the dating of these artifacts um, 
match up to the the city of Dwarka that's uh, discussed in the Mahabharata. Right. So just makes me wonder, though, if that's the case, why is there a city on the coast there called Dwarka? Well, Dwarka is a holy city. And in actuality, um, they believe that the the current modern day Dwarka is, I think, the seventh version of Dwarka. Mm. And they have evidence underneath the city that there were other cities of Dwarka and they built just on top, built on top of it. Uh, OK. Right. So, so that that's why, um, you know, there is there is still a modern day Dwarka. Now, in two thousand one, the students of the National Institute of Oceanography were commissioned by the Indian government to do a survey on pollution in the Gulf of Combat. Now, they were seven miles off the shore. During the survey, they found buildings made of stone covered in mud and sand that covered five square miles. Oh, wow. Okay. Divers collected blocks, um, soil samples, artifacts, copper coins, and scientists believe that this is evidence from an age that's about 3,600 years old. Now, some of these samples were sent to Manipur and Oxford University for carbon dating and the results, they give more questions than they give answers because they found these objects to be around 9,000 years old. Good Lord. But I've, I have always, and I understand, um, at least on the tertiary level, how carbon dating works. Yeah. Okay? But I've always questioned how accurate it could be. I mean, they put so much stock into carbon 14 mm-hmm. dating. I'm like, is it, is it as accurate as we want to believe it to be? That's the truth. What, what if, uh, what if it's quite far off and everything we've, I mean, that would, that would, completely rewrite all of the history that we've learned if we found out carbon 14 dating was either putting things too far in the past mm-hmm. or too recently you know yeah so yeah i mean i everybody says that carbon 14 dating dating is infallible and mm-hmm. that you know um how this carbon 14 you know it's decay rate, and so you can yeah. time it back. But what if we don't? Yeah, and I know we've got people in the graveyard that are way smarter than you or I. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And 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 would probably be able to um, enlighten us on how carbon fourteen dating actually works and why or why not it would be considered infallible. Um, I, I'm not questioning it. I, I'm just saying I've always been curious. If it's truly as accurate as it's believed. Mm-hmm. And I'm questioning it, Matt, because I like to question everything and stir people up. <laughs> That's right. If I let us have it. Tell us all about how four, <laughs> carbon 14 dating works. If um, I stir the pot in just the right way, we'll get we'll get a <laughs> lot of uh, social media interaction here. <laughs> but, you know, and I've, I've wondered, too, if we're talking about dating objects that have been under you know the 
the surface of the ocean for mm-hmm. um, thousands of years, does that impact um, the the dating? You know, well, could, and could, you it can't, call, could it make it more inaccurate? It, I, I would think it might be able to. Um, but again, that's my layman brain here. Um, but you also can't carbon date stone. Yeah. So when you do that, you have to carbon date stuff around it. And I've had issues with, okay, we got a stone structure and then you're carbon dating artifacts that you find around it that you can carbon date. But what if this structure had been there for thousands of years before uh, Jim Bob came by and dropped his elk horn pickaxe near it? <laughs> and he's like, where did I leave my pickaxe? I don't know. Yeah. You know, and then we come by another thousand years later and we go, oh, hey, this was built in here. We see the the tool that was left and it was just Jim Bob's uh, toothpick yeah. that he dropped or something. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, ancient buildings don't have a lot of dates carved no. into them, which would no. be very helpful. Oh, dude, I wish we could go back and say, please carve when you built this into all the stones. Exactly. You know, we should be doing it now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we really should be doing it now. I mean, if we if if we imagine that the earth will be here in another thousand years. Um, yep. What? What could people potentially study? Uh, you know, we need to leave a mark so mm-hmm. that that can be done. Um, yep. I, I don't, you know, I, I know a lot of major structures will have cornerstones with dates and so forth, but I'm talking about just major structures to me don't always speak to what the culture was. Oh, you yeah. Know? Yep. You know, I put it, if I put a date on my house and my house was, was found a thousand years from now, you know, what could they infer from it? Number one, uh, this, this guy had way too many children. Um, he was, he was a terrible housekeeper, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what they'd figure out. Mm -hmm. But that also would, it would give you some minute. He, you know, he, 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 he must, must've liked something that he could, uh, hook up to this this box and you know and and what what is this round object and you know they (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah they're not gonna go oh he was a podcaster (laughs) yeah right right (laughs) but uh they they did find some other things in this um in the search in the gulf of cambay which remember was a study on pollution so they found this stuff by accident um but they also found sandstone walls, a grid of streets, and some evidence of a seaport 70 feet underwater. And some of those artifacts dated back to 7500 BC. But among the artifacts that were recovered were a piece of wood, pottery shards, weathered stones, initially thought to be hand tools fossilized bones, and a tooth. Now, the piece of wood was carbon dated to an age of 9,500 years old. Good grief. So I'm like, okay, a piece of wood that has been underwater for thousands and thousands of years, you're going to actually be able to carbon date that? 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I, I'm 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 impressed. Oh yeah. Um, Ninety five hundred years ago, that that that's Man. really hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, and the fact that it stayed uh, underwater and not decayed and right. Yeah, you I know, know, maybe maybe it in, maybe it lasts longer in salt water. I don't know. I don't know. In arid environments, you know, it it'll dry out and can um petrify or just just mummify basically the the wood. Mm-hmm. But I would think underwater that it would disintegrate after a while. But uh, you would think- again. I'm an idiot, so I don't know. <laughs> I, you know. I've had a piece of driftwood in my aquarium for five years, and it looks exactly yeah. the same as it That's did true. when I stuck it in there. Same. So, yeah. Now, further investigation in the Gulf took place uh, from October 2002 to January 2003. Now, during these ex- excavations, NIOT, the National Institute of Ocean Technology, reported finding two paleo channels flanked by rectangular and square basement-like features. Hmm. Uh, artifacts that were recovered by means of uh, artic- artifacts were recovered by means of dredging include pottery shards, microliths, wattle and daub remains and hearth materials. Now you're you're going to say what's wattle and daub? So Waddle and Daub was a sounds like an attorney's. It does. Uh. It does. <laughs> you know, have have you been injured in an auto accident? <laughs> yep. Call Waddle and Daub. Yeah. Call the <laughs> the the Texas Hammers Waddle and Daub. <laughs> but Waddle and Daub was a a a form of construction where you would would build a a grid like um frame. Okay, and then you use this uh, this clay type material that you know had mud and rock and manure and you name it, anything that they could dry and 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 put over this this gridded framework mm-hmm. and create a wall. Okay, it 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 wasn't necessarily exclusive to this region. You, if you look up Waddle and Daub, you will see buildings that are still standing um, that are made of this. And when you see it, you go, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, but these artifacts, um, these these artifacts were also um, dated at Oxford University and were concluded to be around 9,000 years old. Now, mainstream scientists maintain that ancient Indian culture civilization goes back some four to 5,000 years. But the ruins below the Gulf of Cambay go back at least 9,000 years, proving that ancient Indian civilization is much older than originally believed. So yep. I, I, do, I, I do see that. I mean, if, if, if we're going to believe that we can date these objects to around 9,000 years old and you know, historians believe that Indian civilization goes back four or 5,000 years. This is solid evidence that there was civilization in this region long before that, probably twice as long um, as what originally was thought. Yeah. We kind of touched on that in some episode um, because I was talking about how 
among others, the Indian culture has been around so long. It's been very uh, influential mm-hmm. on the, re- the the entire world. Yeah. Um, and nowadays we're finding stuff. I just saw an article pop up on my phone the other day that says new site that's been overlooked found to be the oldest known uh, place of inhabitants for early humans. And so I, I have it saved so I can go back and read it, but we're still finding things now Oh yeah, that people are like, oh, wait, no, this pushes the human race back further. Oh, wait, now this pushes it back even further. So like you and I have said for many years, there's other societies that we just haven't found the evidence of that lived long before we thought they lived and were way more technologically advanced than we thought. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what exactly happened to Dwarka? Whether you believe that, um, uh, Dr. Rao is correct in, in his location, whether you believe that maybe Dwarka is in the Gulf of Cambay, there's obvious evidence of some type of, of, of city under both of these locations. Yeah. Now, one, one may be Darka, one or Dwarka, one may not be, um, yeah. maybe, maybe they're both, maybe they're two different versions of it. One much older than the other. Yeah. You know, we don't know. Um, but what we can look at is how would these cities, regardless of what they were, wind up under underwater? Okay. So we talked about the rise in sea levels earlier. Now the rise in sea level in that in Dwarka is a scientific truth. Studies have proven that the sea considerably and suddenly rose to submerge this city. Uh, Harivamsha describes the submerging of Dwarka, saying that Krishna instructed Arjuna, who was then visiting Dwarka, to evacuate the residents of the city as the sea was going to engulf it. Now, on the seventh day of Krishna saying this, as the last of the citizens were leaving the city, the sea began to enter the streets of Dwarka. Now, according to experts, there could have been three reasons why the sea entered the land. One was a change in the level of the seabed. Okay. Um, Another is a massive earthquake. Or third, the sudden increase in just the level of the seawater. So, yeah. So we're talking that the the seabed rises up or, or changes in level. Uh, there was a big earthquake that caused this, or it's just rising sea levels. Now, right. of the three, the rising sea level is the most plausible because if it was a change in the level of the seabed, some remains of that tearing off action that occurs on the shore would be visible and there's not. Mm. So uh, what I'm saying is, is if the sea, if the, if the seabed just started to drop like a sinkhole or something and, and the city just kind of fell into the water, there Mm -hmm. would be evidence of that on the shore. Okay. You would, you would see evidence that that's what's happened because they've seen it in other situations. Now there's 
the earthquake theory, um, it can be ruled out as the structures they have found do not appear to have been collapsed. So if hmm. you had an earthquake that was significant enough to raise the sea levels, then it would have destroyed the city as it covered yeah, it. That's true. Okay. That's true. So the the rising sea levels is the most acceptable um, because a similar phenomenon had occurred on the shores of Bahrain around the same time. So you know it's it, it's it's interesting to note here that considerable work has been done onshore and offshore um, in Bahrain, which indicates a deep and regular trade and other relations between the western coast and the coast of present-day Bahrain region. So what they're saying is they see the evidence that Bahrain was a coastal port city, heavily involved in trade. They are seeing similar things with the suspected site of Dwarka. So they're right. seeing a lot of similarities here. Um, so there's reasons for them to believe this could potentially be the city of Dwarka. Now, as you can imagine, excavation underwater is hard and strenuous. Okay. Oh, yeah. Even with modern advanced equipment, because the sea offers way too much resistance. Okay, it it doesn't want it doesn't want you down there. Okay, yeah. excavation is possible only between November and February during low tide. The sea has to be smooth, and there should be bright sunshine. All of these requirements effectively reduce the number of diving days to around forty or forty five. Okay, wow. So out of a year, there's only about 45 days where they can actually do this work. Okay. So That's it's not crazy. like, you know, Hey, you know, we just need to get out here and just get to work. Well, you can't. Okay. You yeah. can't, you know, you got a month and a half that you can do it. Exactly. And they may not all be consecutive. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're going to have bad days where you're like, we can't get anything accomplished because of a storm or something. Yep. And, and so we lose a day. Well, and it, you saying storm, that makes me think you get something excavated, a storm comes in and it changes the sand down there. Oh, yeah. And covers you back up. Yeah. So I just, you know, comes in and just, you know, just pees all over your, your chalk drawing. And it's just yep. like, I just did that yesterday. Yeah. I got to do it again. <laughs> um, in order to make the maximum use of the time available, divers use echo sound, um, uh, use an echo sounder to get a fairly fairly accurate idea of the location and the depth of the object they're wanting to go and investigate. Hmm. The side scan sonar, which we've talked about uh, before, um, it gives them a view of the sea floor. The sonar signals sent inside the water return the signals. Reading of the signals reveals the broad nature of the object under the water. So the public works department routinely conducts dredging in these waters to keep the Gomadi channel open. Now this throws up a ton of sediment, which mm -hmm. settles on these underwater structures, essentially erasing much of the work that's already been done. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you've got a lot of things fighting against you. 
um, to try to excavate this. uh, Man, man man-made things coming in and covering it up. Uh, Nature coming in and covering it up. Uh, It just being underwater. It's almost like nature doesn't want us finding it. Right. Right. Yeah. Nature says, go away. Yeah. Leave me alone. Now, you'll know, as we've talked tonight, um, the the last major excavation you heard me mention was in 2007. So, you know, here in 2022, we're still talking about Dwarka and the excavation of it. Um, I told Adam at the beginning of the show, every, when I was researching this, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting older outdated information so um probably 90 percent of the articles that i used uh in my notes came from this year came from 2022 so it is still uh a very active topic but as if dealing with the issues of an underwater excavation weren't enough Political disputes and bureaucracy have largely left Dwarka unexplored for the last 20 plus years. Okay. Um, because as we said, there's a, there, there's a lot of people that say, you know, the Mahabharata is just a, it's a fictional work. It's a myth. Yep. It's a legend. It's a collection of stories. Um, but there are other people that believe that this, this could be the key to, solidifying the proof of their religion mm-hmm. okay so it's not just uh hey it'd be really cool if we could find this historical lost city it's you know th- this is evidence that you know my my faith is is correct and right. Right. so you can imagine how passionate people would feel about continuing the work to uh, excavate the area believed to be the lost city of Dwarka. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, n- not, not being, um, not having grown up in that area. Um, and, and as Adam said, you know, we didn't grow up learning about um, Indian culture or history or anything. Um, you know, I, I can, I, I can relate to some degree uh, on a historical basis because of what we do. Um, how absolutely uh, amazing would it be to discover proof that this was India's Atlantis? Yeah. I mean, you know, we've, you've heard stories about Atlantis for years and years and years. No one's ever found any definitive evidence that it even existed, much less where it was. Um, you know, here is an opportunity to to uncover possibly proof, one hundred percent proof that not only did this city exist, um, but that it was it was taken back by the sea, just as it's written by Krishna in the in the Mahabharata. Right. Um. It, this was this was fascinating research. Um. Because rarely do we find something like this. Um, yeah, it it, it and, just it it really just it it blew me away. The more the more I read, the more enthralled I was. 
um, uh, about this situation and disappointed that it it hasn't had more work done. Right, right, yeah. That that's one of my one of my things is disappointed that um can't get more people on board to research it, look for it, whatever. Um, but I was mentioning that uh, there's you know. Uh, the people that we talked about that think it's just myths and legends and stuff, so they don't want to put any time and effort into finding it. One of those reasons, I think, is you get shows like uh, Ancient Aliens, and when they discuss something, they discuss it in the most fantastical, wild ways that you possibly could. It's entertaining, but it's not... The most accurate, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Um, one of the things in the Mahabharata is they discuss in Dwarka, there were things called Vimanas. Now, Vimanas are supposedly flying or floating temples. So they, w- they would float basically above another temple that was built on the ground. The Vimanas would be up and they could move these temples around. So you've got... Some people that think, well, the Vimanas, that's proof that it was ancient aliens and these are the spaceships, right? Okay. Then you've got some people that say, well, there's no such thing as a flying or floating temple. So it's obviously all a legend mm-hmm. because this couldn't exist. Um, but then you've got other people that are like, well, you know, if he is God, the incarnation of Vishnu, why couldn't he raise a temple into the air like that? Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, if you want to take the the more technological stance on it, you and I have talked about the knowledge of ancient peoples. What did they know that we didn't know? And you have... Just take the the pyramids in Egypt, for example. How did they move these giant blocks? Mm -hmm. Well, we've discussed acoustic resonance before. Yeah. Where if you play a certain tone or or something vibrates in a certain way, it can levitate objects. We can do that now with drops of water or whatever. Um, Yeah. So if this was a highly technological society in India, then what if these things did fly or float by either acoustic resonance, magnetism, something? So you could actually have little floating temples and it'd be technological. But then you've also got people that will say, well, that can't happen because they were obviously not that technologically advanced. They couldn't have figured that out. Yeah. How do you know? Well, why not? I mean, our our study of the stars and astronomy came from how many thousands of years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, they they were looking up the stars, making maps of the stars and all this thousands of years ago. Well, I, they could have found out about magnetism, earth magnets and stuff like that. But it, to me, the, the Vimanas is a good example of why people will say it's all legend it's all stories right because of the the flying temples mm-hmm. and and shows like ancient aliens that 
say, oh, this is proof that aliens were there and all uh, 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 Krishna and Vishnu and all that, they were aliens and all this like they do with every topic. But Right, because apparently it's easier to believe in aliens than a deity. Yeah, <laughs> or it's easier to believe in aliens than the fact that human beings could have been super smart mm-hmm. before us. Right. You know, it's it's the hubris of today's society that we are the smartest that's ever been around. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's already evidence that there was intelligent design here. I mean, look at the anchors. Um, yep. You know, the, I mean, that and you, you know, some people look at it and go, it's an anchor. I'm like, yeah, but there was at some point in time, there was somebody sitting around going, how the hell do I stop my boat? Uh-huh. How, how do I keep my boat from floating away when I get out of yep. it? Um, well, and just the fact that it's not just a rock with a rope tied around it. Right. These are triangular pieces of stone with holes drilled into them mm-hmm. so that you could run cord, uh, cordage through it back and forth and create a secure connection. And the triangle pieces would connect in the, the mud on other rocks on whatever. Right. It wasn't just a big, heavy object. Right. It was designed in a specific way, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, it's, which is why I found it so fascinating that so many centuries ago, they figured that out. If I make a triangle and drill holes in it, if they were not technologically advanced, how the hell did they drill holes, round holes into these rocks? Yeah. You know, um, they didn't sit there for 200 years making one anchor. I'm sorry. You can't tell me that, um, you know, slowly drilling a hole in it, but <laughs> Um, just to have that knowledge, uh, that many centuries ago and be able to accomplish that feat with what they say was primitive tool tools kind of throws a wrench in my opinion into that. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my thought on it is even if, even if they weren't able to find proof that this was the actual city of Dwarka. It's still fascinating because there's evidence that there was a city there. Yes. And in, yeah. and in more than one location. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, my gut says, go, you know, look at it, find it, find whatever you can, you know, research it until you know, for sure. Um, either yep. what it was or what it could have been. Um, you know, find as much evidence as is available. Um, but not everybody thinks like you and I, <laughs> you know, and, and, and just as I said, this is not something that's easy to do. Um, it's definitely not something that's free. Okay. Um, but I did, I, I, I did find a little bit about how much money the, the Indian government has put into, um, searching Dr. Rao's site as opposed to searching the the Gulf of Cambay, and it it, it was it, there it was significantly higher for the Gulf of Cambay than it is for the site uh, that that Dr. Rao was um yeah was looking at yeah. um I mean you know it, it roughly it it would uh, it would convert to um 
you know, around uh, two, I think it said like 200 and some odd thousand dollars. Um, maybe, um, maybe a little bit more. Um, it was kind of difficult to see the conversion, but, um, the, the, the dollar amount wasn't as significant as the difference was. Yeah. So, um, and of course some people were saying, you know, you, you're not doing this. You're not putting the funding here because you, you believe that it's a myth and you feel like that it's wasted resources or, you know, even going as far as saying, you know, essentially, you know, a, a faction of Hindus saying you're keeping the man down. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just it, it's it's just a, a, a way to to exert, you know, force and control over a, another group. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know about that. I just know that it, it would be it, it would be incredible to find evidence in either one of these locations that it was actually the lost city of Dwarka and, and, mm-hmm. and what that would mean um, yep. historically and religiously. Well, and like you said, what it would mean to find evidence of these ancient cities, period, mm-hmm. because it, it would prove that or help prove that these civilizations, the Indian society was around long before we thought it was i know that that in and of itself is is just an incredible discovery Mm -hmm. you know that if 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 we if we believe that this dating is correct i mean you know you're essentially talking about an additional four to five thousand years of of indian civilization that was previously not even believed to have existed all right, so let us know what you think. We we find this topic just absolutely amazing. What do you guys think? Um, do you guys feel like we do that that more resources should be poured into into searching this? Do you feel like I'm just I'm not sold? I think it's neat, but they're they're probably mistaking uh, mistaking different. Uh, uh, structures for things that are far more modern. You know, they just, they don't know what they're looking at, whatever, let us know. And the best place mm-hmm. to do that is in our Facebook group. Uh, go on Facebook and search graveyard tales. You will find our group. It's called the graveyard. We have thousands of members. Um, it, it is extremely active. It's a lot of fun and you hear some great personal experiences and stories from folks. You get some good jokes um, and it's a safe place. Um, you're not going to be made fun of. You you can kind of share, you know, look, you know, did you, did you believe there was a ghost living up in your grandfather's attic? Did you see it? We want to hear those stories. And so does everybody yep. else. Um, There's only one person that gets made fun of in there and that's Filbert and <laughs> he gets made fun of by everybody. He's used to it. That's all right. Old I'm just kidding. There's yeah. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a name that I doubt anybody has. That's right. That's right. I haven't seen a Filbert in the group yet, so old, that's why I went. Oh, Filbert, he's a nut, you know. Yeah, um, Filbert McCoy. <laughs> but you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can check out our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com, and there you can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. You can listen to the show, learn a little bit more about Adam and myself, 
Uh, and you can become a patron, um, which, as Adam mentioned earlier, you know, the, uh, our top tier patrons get video of the mm-hmm. uh, of us recording the episode. You get to see all the flubs and mistakes and outtakes um, that we cut out before, um, you know, we release the, f- the final edit of the show. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, and you get to see us messing with one another and, and just talking about this, that, and the other. So, uh, so yeah, for the lost city of Dwarka, uh, I think that's all we got. So, Mm -hmm. um, until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.